Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting live from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Muslim territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Saida Unjo, and I have a packed show for you today. So we are going to start out with a shout out to Clean Espejos from The Colch. We then have an interview with Jeff Dion. We also have an interview with Debbie Friday. We have three reviews, review of Kim's Convenience. I have my friend Andre that'll join me for this review. I have a review of Albatros, which is part of the Vancouver International Dance Festival. And we also have Lua's review of Little Red Warrior and his lawyer, which is also from the culture. Um, so before we get into all of our wonderful content. Let's start with our shout out to Clean Espejos. So our lovely correspondent Silvana is supposed to <laughs> review this. Um, however, she got COVID because <laughs> we are, <laughs> you know, still in a pandemic. So she's not able to attend it. Um, when she was supposed to attend it, which was this week, um, but she will still be attending it and reviewing it. So you know, stay tuned for that in the upcoming weeks. But for now, let me tell you. So Clean Espejos is um, by the New World Theater in Vancouver. It is part of the Femme Festival and also the Replay Digital Series. Uh, so the playwright and dramaturge is Cristina Quintana and translation adaptation is by Paula Zelaya Cervantes. The reason there's a translation and adaptation is because it is a bilingual play. Both in person and online, there will be subtitles slash translations, so you're not going to miss anything. And also the cool thing is that on the culture's website, they have the explanation like the, you know, what this show is about, both in English and Spanish. So I'll just read it to you. This is stunning, shocking, and surprisingly funny. Clean Espejos is a new work for from celebrated playwright Christine Quintana with translation and adaptation by Paula Zelaya Cervantes that intimately explores different perspectives of female solidarity, secrets, and survival across two languages. The lives of two women from very different worlds intertwine in the illusionary paradise of a Mexican resort. Adrian Diana, a hotel floor manager reeling from a family loss, has a chance encounter with Sarah, a Canadian wedding guest with a long-held traumatic secret. When their worlds collide on a fateful rainy night, both women are forced to face their past and all that they've tried to keep hidden. And it sounds very exciting, and I'm so, so, so excited to hear Silvana's review of this. And it's also really cool that Silvana will be reviewing it because Silvana's from Colombia, so her native language is Spanish, so she'll be able to understand both without subtitles, which is really cool. This is playing at the Historic Theater in person until March 19th, and you can also find it on demand from April 5th to April 10th. So if you're not in Vancouver or if you're not able to attend it in person until March 19th, you can you can watch it on demand. <laughs> it's very cool. Um, again, this is called Clean Slash Espejos, and it is by, presented within the Cult by the New World Theater. Uh, now that we have our shit out of the way, <laughs> let's get into our interview. So our lovely correspondent, Cecilia, interviewed Debbie Friday for her residency. And yeah, here's the interview. Let's hope this plays because last week we had some technical problems, but let's go. All right. Hi, um, I'm Ruby Raven. I'm here with Debbie Friday, the writer and star of the Wait, I'm going to pause for a second. Ruby interviewed Debbie, not Cecilia. We also have another interview from Cecilia. It got mixed up. Anyways, enjoy. For virtual, which runs from March 10th to 11th at the Western Front. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Very busy. Just trying to finish up the project, but it's going well. All right. So normally when I do interviews, I have seen the, the show or the work of art that I'm interviewing the artist about, but this is a first for me. I haven't had a chance to see your show yet because uh, it runs next week. So I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about what it is. 
Yeah, totally. So my project is called V for Virtual, and I've been completing this project over the past month of my residency at Western Front, and I call it an audiovisual play. Essentially, what that means is that it's comes out of um, the idea of an audio play, but it also has accompanying visuals, and it's kind of a form of art that takes this like multidisciplinary approach that it's not quite film and it's not quite just like radio theater um that type of thing like another word I use is like sonic theater because I do see it very much as a play Mm -hmm. um and the live aspect of it is the audience going in to see it and the installation and all of that like it is very much a multidisciplinary work and it is the third installment in a series that I started with my thesis project that I finished for my master's last year. And the first installment was called Link Sick. I had always wanted to write a story about a rave and kind of just integrating my clubbing days and adventures (laughs) into some kind of creative project. And so I made Link Sick. And then um, following that, I created Vow, which was a commission I did um, at the Ottawa Art Gallery. And that was where I took it from being simply like an audio play because Linksick was an audio play and it had visual elements, but it was purely audio. Whereas with Vow, I started incorporating visual elements and specifically it was generative art and generative morphs. What I did with that project was that I took pictures of people here in Vancouver and I combined their faces with generated faces. Um, So you can generate a human face using something called a GAN, which is a generative adversarial network. It's a type of AI technology. And Mm -hmm. so I combined real faces with fake faces and just kind of like splice them together to create this moving visual that went along with the audio portion. And in this project, I'm not, I'm doing similar things to the past two projects, but this time it's kind of, I feel like it's just like a better blend almost like I'm figuring out exactly how to um, blend the two styles that I did together. Mm-hmm. And it's still based in the same world. Like all three projects are based in the same world called virtual, where essentially people have abandoned their real lives and they live their lives through this um, digital environments, essentially, mm-hmm. and they never log out. And so just yeah. thinking about that, thinking about, you know, conversations around right now and like our digital reality and the mixed reality that we live in. Um, And also just the last two years of the pandemic, how everything Mm. just went online and went Mm -hmm. very virtual. Um, I'm not necessarily, I didn't necessarily create the projects to have like a stance on the matter, but more Mm -hmm. just to explore different ideas. And specifically in V for Virtual, I drew a lot of inspiration from uh, Dante's Inferno, which I reread for this. And just the idea of like these different layers of hell. So in this story, there's like these different levels of virtual that the main character um, takes us through. And each layer has like different components and explores different ideas of the world itself. Um, But it's not very clear necessarily I guess it is a little bit hellish in that Mm -hmm. um, things are uh, really intense and things are breaking down. There's Mm -hmm. war, there is like what I call whiteouts, which is like a a blackout in this digital world. Um, But at the same time, it's all about questioning all of that. It's like, what is reality? What is heaven? What is hell? Just thinking about these things. Right. So you're not so much trying to say like, this is how my audience should think about this topic. You're trying to just spark the conversation of let's think about what this technology means in our lives. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's, that's really, really cool. Well, you explained that really well. Like I had like four questions and you answered all of those. Um, And I noticed in this one, you have a cast, you're an ensemble. So I'm wondering what that was like with a project that's like, so yours, what it was like to collaborate with, with bring people in and collaborate with them. Um, I actually love it. Like the first time I did it, I did it with Linksick. And then with Vow, I only worked with one other person. Um, But working with this ensemble cast this time, I 
just I love it like I asked a bunch of friends who I know through music to be part of it which I think is like another interesting component like getting people who they're not voice actors you know they're not actors they don't work in film or whatever um they're musicians a lot of them most of them actually and so just like getting that element and like drawing from I guess you could say like my contemporaries and my cohort and putting them in these roles that they're not used to I think it gives some really interesting results and every Everyone did a fantastic job um, and I kind of see it essentially as like an extension of my directorial work um, mm. in a way and it's just a different kind of directing. That's really cool. So like how much t- like different roles did you take on? Like did, like did you write the play, write the music, direct, act? Like, like what are all your roles in the project? Everything that you just listed. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote play, I I wrote the play, I scored the play, I acted as one of the voices in the play, and I directed everyone as well. Um, So yeah, I pretty much did everything, but I kind of work in that way. Like I see myself very much almost like architecturally, like I like to have a hand in every aspect of a project that I'm part of. Even if I'm collaborating with other people, it's very important to me that I'm able to also, um, you know, just basically express my vision. You know, I have a very strong idea of what it is that I want out of things. And so that's part of it. That's awesome. So um, is there sort of something you could compare this to? Like, if you like blank, you will like this show. Um, hmm. What can I compare it to? If you, I guess, if you like science fiction, you'll like this. If you like philosophy, you'll like this. If you like electronic or experimental music, you'll like this. Um, If you just like art, if you have like an appreciation for art and for thinking about the future, you'll like this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so everyone who's listening, like if you like almost anything, you should just come to Debbie Friday's (laughs) show. (laughs) Anything, you should come to the show. Um, so you already talked about, um, Dante's Inferno sort of being an inspiration. Uh, mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, I reread Dante's Inferno, a translation of it, um, recently, and it was accompanied by these images by this illustrator. I just, I can't remember the name right now, but it just really struck me. It's like very much Dante is like a poet of you know the present time like this idea like a lot of the things that he explored in Inferno I think are very pertinent to what is going on right now especially as we see like this kind of collapse of the world as we know it um, culturally economically all of these things and I know for myself anyway this is accompanied by a lot of anxiety and just like a lot of questions and confusion and all sorts of things and I hear these things in conversation just in what's happening happening out there in the world amongst my friends, you know, amongst the industry and everything. And so drawing from Inferno felt, it just felt right for me almost. Like I wanted Mm -hmm. to explore this idea of almost like revelations and like, okay, so what if the world does end? You know, what happens? (laughs) Like, what is that process actually like? What if the world is ending right now? Um, and kind of allowing myself to sit in that space and it's really uncomfortable and it's very scary in a lot of ways and so yeah that's a little bit about that that's awesome thank you Um, and I guess my final question is just you know you've you seem to have really been able to express how you're feeling in in these three you know this three-part show so I'm wondering what advice you would give to artists who are looking to put up their work in Vancouver? Oh, what advice would I give? Um, I think the best piece of advice I would give is to make your art, first of all, because I know a lot of people and I hear a lot of just like, you know, you get nervous, people get nervous, people get in their heads about things, they overthink and stuff. Don't overthink, just make your work, keep making your work, develop your vision. That's the most important part is just like developing your vision and deciding what it is that you want to say, what it is that you want to share with people. And as far as getting your work out there, I'm very much a believer and a proponent of the idea that there is an audience for everything. Mm -hmm. So even if you might not find it immediately, 
you somebody will find your work and they will get something out of it because there's an audience for everything you have fans somewhere in the world somewhere <laughs> you never know awesome. where that's gonna be well thank you so much um once again, Debbie Friday, writer, star, director, scorer of V for Virtual, which runs from March 10th to 11th at the Western Front. So if you're looking for something cool to do that you will be interested in, go see Debbie Friday at the Western Front. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Une entente de règlement a été conclue concernant la qualité de l'eau potable pour les Premières Nations et le processus de réclamation est maintenant ouvert. Le règlement prévoit une indemnisation de 1,8 milliard de dollars pour certaines personnes et Premières Nations visées par des avis à long terme concernant la qualité de l'eau potable entre novembre 1995 et juin 2021 et 50 millions de dollars pour les personnes admissibles qui ont subi des préjudices particuliers en raison de ces avis. Si vous êtes un membre d'une Première Nation dont la communauté a été touchée par un avis à long terme concernant la qualité de l'eau potable, vous pourriez avoir droit à une indemnisation. Vous aurez également accès gratuitement à des conseils et à une assistance juridique pour déposer votre demande. Il s'agit de la première étape dans la reconnaissance des communautés touchées. Pour plus d'informations ou pour soumettre votre demande, rendez-vous sur le site firstnationsdrinkingwater.ca/fr. This Quarter Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, This Quarter lives. Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. Welcome back. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? You're listening to the Art Support on CITR 101.9 FM. I hope you enjoyed that interview that Ruby did with Debbie Friday. Uh, we have another interview coming up. But before that, we have a review of Kim's Convenience from the Arts Club. And my friend Andre is joining me. Hi, Andre. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How yeah. about yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so it keeps convenience. If it sounds familiar to you, it's because this play was adapted into a TV series that ran for how many seasons? I think around four seasons. Damn. So it was quite long. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of seasons. <laughs> and then, yeah, so the Arts Club Theatre Company is presenting the actual play the OG <laughs> and it's running until March 27th and yeah so do you like would you like to tell us what Kim's Convenience is about sure yeah I think uh, the best way to put it um, is it follows this this Korean family based in Toronto yes and uh, they, they own a, a store named Skin Convenience yeah <laughs> and uh, it just kind of takes you through like the life and and all the sorts of things that do happen in that store and and i guess the show is based on the play that the arts club has put up but um the arts club kind of takes us through a one hour 15 minute play yes. uh, that just shows us the things that happen within the family and whatever happens in the store and uh yeah and it's a real crowd pleaser if you ask me yeah it is there were a lot of laughing and people seem to you know enjoy i i mean i enjoyed it too i'm speaking as if like i didn't enjoy it i'm like <laughs> people seem to enjoy it I yeah, i'm just gonna keep myself away from <laughs> <it>. <laughs> okay so would you like to start off or do you want me to start talking about sure i, I can go first yes yeah. go i think that uh as a, as a show as like a play in itself wait also I would like to mention this was Andre's first ever play that he attended. So. Yes, yes. So exciting. I, I have you to thank for that. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And this is his first time on radio. Yeah, yeah. So many firsts for you. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I think speci specifically because it was my first play, I think I couldn't have had a better one to start off with. It's a great crowd pleaser. I think uh, from, from start to finish, I had a great time. There were some really good jokes. And I, I think the really the really interesting thing about the play is the way it manages comedy and drama mm -hmm. quite effortlessly, actually. I think there were moments where I was laughing and then it would go straight into drama. 
and i think the way in which it did that was was really was really good it was and the best part about kim's convenience as a story i think is below all of it below the fact that they're they're you know they're managing a, a store and everything mm-hmm. it's really just a heartfelt story of an immigrant family in toronto yeah. and i think uh, for a lot of us uh, it in canada it is quite universal so yes i yeah. agree uh, what did you like best about the play I think without a doubt I think both of us can say it was uh James Yee's performance as Appa yes. uh, slash oh Mr. God, Kim. Yes. I I haven't again it's my it's my first play. So <laughs> I can say for me personally he was a revelation <laughs> and uh especially as somebody who's followed the the TV show before actually yeah. watching the play I I loved how even the way uh I think her name is Kitlin Williams that's the director of the play mm-hmm. and I think uh, the way in which she kind of directed him and brought about this like seamless transition between maybe the the, the TV show performance as well as the play performance mm-hmm. it didn't kind of give me some sort of like whiplash watching it you know I felt like oh I'm still back in the Kim Kim's world nice. and you know it was just great I think he was phenomenal in the in the performance yeah yeah oh my god he really was Um I mean everyone in the cast did a really good job. Let me just quickly read off the cast. There isn't a lot of them, so this won't take long. <laughs> Andrew Creighton played Rich, Mr. Lee, Mike and Alex. Brianna Kim played Janet. Howie Lay Lai Lay. Damn pronunciations played <laughs> young. <laughs> James Yi played Appa and Maki Yi played Uma. Um and what was I going to say? Oh, I'm like really happy to hear that for you it was you didn't you didn't get whiplash from you know yeah. like transitioning from the tv show to the play yeah. because plays you know stage productions are so different from screen yeah. when it comes to both how it is produced and also you know like the acting as mm-hmm. you mentioned yeah. you know you're like took me a second to get used to it but yeah. you know <laughs> yeah i learned that the hard way <laughs> Well I was like why is everybody talking so loudly and you're like Andre you need to like you know educate yourself with like play acting but yeah No I honestly you know the the people in the back row need to hear no, I I completely get it I completely understand yeah Yeah and okay so my thoughts are that there were definitely like some really really good moments mm-hmm. uh I wrote some down my favorite joke was <laughs> When so the character Alex is a cop. Yeah. And Janet and Alex were talk- talking. Um and Janet is she wants to be a photographer so she was carrying her camera around and <laughs> Alex goes, "Where are you shooting?" <laughs> saying, you know, pictures. And then Janet replies with, "Where are you shooting?" <laughs> I was like, "Yes." <laughs> That was a really well and, and honestly <laughs> one of the many examples which where like the show actually tried like risky humor yeah. and pulled it off. Yeah, because like there were so many jokes about like people Race. from different races. Yeah, yeah that was like the, it was just that the line, you mm-hmm. know, could have become really racist really easily. Yeah. It's like playing like jump rope with that line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um okay, so there was one single thing that bothered me and i don't think it bothered you it, yeah i think i know what you're talking about but, yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know how we have been telling you that uh everyone was able to everyone in the cast was able to make us laugh a lot the whole you know the whole audience was laughing and with laughing comes um not being able to hear the actors <laughs> and usually the actors wait for like either the clapping or like the laughing to kind of simmer down so that they can start speaking again and then the audience can hear them right yeah they didn't do that and <laughs> i couldn't hear some of the conversations and i was just so annoyed by that but i mean you didn't even notice yeah, it right I, yeah I, i'm so used to watching stuff with like a laughter track in the background <laughs> So, it was it was new to me. But yeah, I, I didn't mind it too bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think I might be a little nitpicky. I don't know. <laughs> also, something that I really want to mention is that the story is about this Korean family living in Canada, right? And it being more in the realistic side where there were parts where they speaking in Korean to each other and i would assume most of the audience did not know korean and yeah. they did not understand it but and as someone who does not speak korean 
I was still able to understand kind of what they were saying, you know, both from the previous context of what just happened and what you think might, they might be talking about and also their body language. You know, I think it was so well done. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, like, yeah. do speak more in Korean. Like, yeah. I want to see how you interpret, like how we interpret mm-hmm. what you're saying and also how you're conveying what you're saying to us with your body language that was just <laughs> i think it was it was the perfect amount as well right like it was just the right amount where you have enough context but it isn't where you're alienated almost from the story and i think uh, they managed to do that really really well yeah, yeah yeah i think so too um okay what else the set oh my god yes <gasps> i i love the set so much Primarily because, of course, in terms of just like making it seem real, they did a very, very great job with it. But the fact that Kim's Convenience is based in Toronto, and I noticed that there was a lot of Toronto references, like yeah. in terms of like the Dundas like street sign or like just like the streetcar signs and things like that. Like, and it's it's very interesting because they could have just made the show universally Canadian, but it was a very specific, uh, you know, choice to make it Toronto based. Like, even in terms of just some of the characters being, you know. Having Toronto lingo sometimes, yeah. You know, some of the some of the characters that do show up amongst the show, right? So yeah, in terms of the set, I think they did a great job with yes. that. Yes, the set designer, Carolyn Rapinos, good job, man. That was so good. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> also, like, um, so Brianna Kim, who played mm-hmm. Janet, yes, did a takeover on Arts Club's Instagram. Okay. Yeah, and Arts Club usually does this. All right, they all like right. yeah have one of the actors do an Instagram takeover, and mm-hmm. then they usually do Q and As. Yeah. And Brianna Kim was doing Q and A too. And something that I was wondering mm-hmm. was. Do you remember that scene where Janet hands Alex snacks and he's like, yes. here, do you want like Pringles? Oh, yes. have a cliff bar, blah, blah, blah. And, like, and, stuff. Yeah, 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 and picks up a lot of stuff. So mm-hmm. do, do you like peanuts? <laughs> 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 if you go see it, you'll understand why we're laughing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so what I was wondering is, I wonder if in like the text, the script itself, it's written you know, she grabs this snack, that snack, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Or if the director told her to pick up which one specifically, or if it's up to her, she's just like, you know, like each night, maybe she's grabbing a different snack or like, yeah. you know, tonight is Cheetos, tomorrow's maybe Pringles. Maybe she's craving Pringles, Sarah. Yeah, What's your exactly. problem? <laughs> so I was just really curious and I asked her, but I, th- <laughs> I didn't word it properly, I don't think, okay. because she thought I was asking if the snacks were real. <laughs> and then she, like, took a video of the set, which was, like, really good still because I got, like, we were able to see the set in more detail. Yeah. It was like, are they real? Are they not? <laughs> Who knows? Can you imagine one of the actors just, like, really craving, like, a pack of chips and opens it <laughs> and it's just, like, air? <laughs> I, mean, so, uh... I mean... I <laughs> mean... That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's already what you get. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But, but actually, let me just take this opportunity. Since you were talking about uh, Brianna Kim, yeah. I personally loved her as Janet. Yeah. There was there's this one scene uh, in the play, and, and you'll note when you see it, where it's particularly emotional, and she's kind of talking to uh, Mr. Kim. Yeah. And I think uh, I mean, she personally just like drew me way into the show. And uh, yeah, I just, she was really great. Yeah, <laughs> little claps. Well, yeah, I. It was just so good, and like yeah. as you said, it's like the perfect play to go to if you're not that into theater, or mm-hmm. if you haven't gone to a play, and you're intimidated by it. Yeah. Um, as a first timer, you can say. Yeah, and and I think even personally, like. Even if, say, you just don't watch plays, but you love Kim's Convenience. Yeah. I think it's just a great show to, you know, to, to show up for. And it just, it's it's just, a like I said in the beginning, it's an all-around crowd pleaser. And I think if you just spend a good, you know, one and a half hour at, uh, I believe, Stanley Industrial Yeah, Alliance, the Stanley Industrial Yeah, Alliance. like, I think you'll just have a great, like, night out. Yes, exactly. And I think at the end of the day, that's pretty much everybody, anything's exactly. very looking for, you know? It's entertainment, baby. <laughs> Um, so some information about performances. They have some special performances. They're having a talk back Tuesday, which is basically after the show. Um, some of the creators or like the cast stay and 
they talk about the rehearsal process, the production, and they get questions from the audience. That's happening on March 15th at 7.30 p.m. There is uh, vocal eye performances on Sunday, March 20th at 2 p.m. and March 25th at 8 p.m. A relaxed performance, that's basically for neurodivergent people who might get um, overwhelmed or stimulated by, you know, a normal uh, theater experience. That's happening Sunday, March 20th at 7 p.m. And they have an ASL interpreted performance on March 23rd at 7.30 p.m. And as I said, Kim's Convenience running until March 27th at the Stanley Industrial Alliance stage. You can find tickets at the Arts Club uh, artsclub.com. And yeah, anything you would like to mention before we get into our interview? No, I think I just think that we should show up for, you know, Kim's Convenience. It's a it's already a great time out. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, Andre. Thank you so much, Sarah. Okay, enjoy this interview with Jeff Dion that Cecilia did, and we'll be back after that. Bye. <laughs> Hi, it's Cecilia. Today we have Jeff Dion as our guest, who is the writer for How the Wild Things Sleep, which is an upcoming documentary on CBC. First of all, could you please briefly tell us about How the Wild Things Sleep? So the documentary is about the different ways that creatures, great and small and microscopic, sleep. For some reason that we're not quite sure about, Mother Nature seems to have wired all living things to sleep and all living things sleep in different ways. So really the, the documentary asks the basic question, why do we sleep? Not so much how do we sleep, but why do we sleep? Well, why do we sleep? Okay. I'm curious how you got the idea for the show. Sleep is crucial to all living things, but what made you decide to focus on creatures other than humans? Um, we focused on all creatures because uh, sleep is one of the great mysteries of, of science. Um, and it's a sort of a riddle wrapped up in a mystery, wrapped up in a conundrum. We don't fully understand it. And, and we were just, as filmmakers, we were drawn to that aspect of it. Um, Sleep was only really studied in any great detail from you know the middle of the 20th century on when we could attach ECGs to people's heads, electrodes to people's heads. And we were exploring, you know, as science, science was exploring sleep disorders and the different stages of sleep and REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And, uh, and, and the study of sleep was also really focused on sleep's performance in humans and how it affected our memory and our cognitive ability. And we could do that because we could put electrodes on people's heads and then we could ask them about their dreams. But of course, there's lots of creatures that you can't do that with. There's lots of creatures that you can't attach electrodes to. And of course, you can't have a conversation with a cat or a dog or, or a bee uh, or a seal. Um, and, and so, it, it became, it became more and more perplexing. The more science dug into um, sleep and the different ways that it manifests itself. Like animals sleep very differently from species to species. The basic question of why we sleep was started to be asked. And we found that an interesting question. So that's why we went into it. From what I know, documentaries are different from shows with narratives. Could you tell us to what extent the show was scripted? Well, documentaries aren't typically scripted other than the narration piece of it. So what we do is we research the subject matter and then we identify certain experts in quotes, um, wherever they happen to be around the world. So in this case, we wanted an expert to talk about how elephants sleep. We wanted an expert to talk about how fur seals sleep, an expert to talk about how birds sleep, because it's all different in all the species. We wanted an expert to talk about how bees sleep. And, um, and so those people are pre-interviewed. Like we, we do, there's a research stage where we talk to these people as individuals to hear what they have to say. And then on the day of the shoot, when the cam when they're actually in front of the camera, um, the you know questions are asked that elicit their information, but it's not scripted in that sense. The you know the people who are answering the questions, there's no, they're not following a script, and sometimes they'll say things that we weren't expecting or that didn't come up in the pre-interview, and so that'll change that'll change the questioning. So 
The only, the only part of the process is actually scripted in the true sense of script is at the very end when the writer's job, which was my job in this case, was to pull together the interviews, like what people said, and then try and connect them in a way that made sense. And then to give David Suzuki the job of uh, narrating the links so that the piece has a kind of a, what we hope is a coherent beginning, a middle and an end. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. There's a long answer, but that's how it's scripted. Then what were the criteria for deciding which creatures to take a deeper dive into? Um, it was actually the German production team that had the original idea uh, for, for this documentary about why creatures sleep. And they had, when they came to the Canadian production company for whom I work, they already had certain decisions made. There were certain things that they already knew that they wanted to do. For instance, this, there's a study in the documentary of Canada geese, which is being done in Germany. And uh, that's very close to where this German production company lived. And they were fascinated by this idea that uh, Canada geese and, and some other birds can sleep unihemispherically, which means they sleep with half of their brain at any one time. Um, I wish I could do that. Um, uh, arguably, I have some from time to time at different meetings I've been in. But anyway, um, so so the Germans came with certain ideas and, and, you know, the elephants were their idea. And then the Canadian team had to come up with ideas for examples that we could shoot. So the Canadian team uh, shot the bees in, in Wisconsin. Um, and, and so the shoots were kind of divided up. So definitely not all my idea. Definitely not. It's a team of people. Um, it's, you know, there was three or four producers involved in this who sort of put their heads together collectively and came up with the species list. There were some that we wanted to do, which became impractical because of um, to various reasons, COVID or the unavailability of the expert or our inability to travel to a certain place because of COVID. And so um, this documentary, one of the miracles about it is that they got made at all because it was all shot during COVID when travel was essentially impossible. So what we did is we hired local camera crews in each location, um, which was an interesting way to go because it certainly reduces the carbon footprint of the documentary. Yeah. So very, very little flying was done, you know, from place to place. Normally on a documentary like this, I would have flown to all of those places and interviewed all those people. Absolutely. And of course I was disappointed that I couldn't do that, but um, such is life. Everybody suffered during COVID and uh, I'm playing the world's smallest violin here as I describe my, my plight at not being able to travel, uh, small price to pay. Um, so it's, it's, it was really very difficult logistically to put together with all these different camera crews and then interviewing people over the phone. Um, but it miraculously, it kind of works. And, and, and I think, I think it's true to say, when you look at the documentary, you can't tell, but it's, it's not done in the normal way. I mean, there's no zoom sessions, for instance, like, you know, all the subjects actually appear on camera in their natural habitat as do the, the animals, you know, in laboratories or wherever they're to be found. So, mm -hmm. so it's definitely not my decision. It's, it's a collective team of people who came up with this idea. Some documentaries are done differently. Um, you know, a point of view documentary would be completely different. That could be one director deciding exactly what he or she wanted to shoot and not being answerable to anybody. But that's not typically how these documentaries, the nature of things for CBC, uh, that's typically not how they're done. I see. I personally really wanted to ask you this question. What's your favorite part of the show? Uh, my personal favorite uh, part of the show is, um, well, there's a few. I love the bee specialist. His name is Barrett Klein. He's an entomologist and he lives in Wisconsin. And he's an absolutely fascinating and engaging subject who loves insects. He is a bug nut. He lives for bugs. And, uh, and he knows more about bees than any human being I've ever met. And he speaks about them with just huge passion. And the thing that he did, which I found really fascinating, he makes the point that if you want to study the purpose of sleep, one way to do it is to deprive the creature that you're studying of sleep 
to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And he invented this incredible contraption in his lab, which deprives certain select bees in, in this hive, in this observation hive, which has glass walls, so you can see into it. He attaches tiny magnets to their backs and paints color codes on them and then puts them back in the hive. And then he passes this contraption over the front of them, which is, has magnets on it. And, and as they pass over those individual bees, the bees get jostled a little bit, just enough to keep them awake. And then he can see how they perform the next day and what he was able to demonstrate by depriving these particular bees of sleep is that the next day, their waggle dance was seriously impaired. Um, a waggle dance is when a bee in a hive goes out and finds a food source. Yeah. Um, um, it can come back to the hive and by executing a waggle dance, it can tell the other bees, the other forager bees, in what direction to fly and how far to fly in order to find that food source. So a waggle dance is really critical to the prosperity of the hive because they had, I guess, what would be the bee equivalent of brain fog. You know, they were fuzzy. They, uh, they you know, they couldn't think straight, just like you or I, if we, if we have an overnight flight or we lose a couple of nights sleep for whatever reason, we don't think that clearly. Um, he was able to demonstrate that with bees, which I thought was, Absolutely fascinating. That is fascinating. Were there any challenges when writing the script and did it require you to research scientific knowledge? Yes, I suppose, yeah. Um, these documentaries on the nature of things have to be scientifically sound, but they're not written for scientists. They're written for a general audience. And so part of the challenge is translating often what is dense scientific language into plain English. And um, we try on, on these kind of pieces, we try and speak in a everyday kind of language. We don't bombard the audience with complex terms or concepts they, they're not familiar with. And if we have to introduce a concept that's really important, we have to figure out how to translate it into sort of plain English. So that's a kind of, um, that's a language challenge, if you will. And it is a form of translation, interpretation. And I, I personally find that very interesting to take a, a complicated scientific premise and translate it and make it understandable to a general audience. So I'd say that's, that's the biggest challenge in a piece like this. Yeah, absolutely. Lastly, in the part of the show, Dr. Park Klein, an entomologist, said that there's so much potential to explore sleep in many other ways. Would you want to write more TV shows about sleep, whether it be a follow-up or another show? If so, in which areas of sleep would you further discuss? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I am a generalist, which, which means that I'm generally interested in a lot of different things. Um, and uh, it's not that I have a short attention span. I mean, I do, but that's not the problem. It's just that once I've completed a documentary on one subject, I like to move on to another one. I personally probably won't do another documentary about sleep. Someone else will, because as, you know, as, as the knowledge evolves and there's more to say, someone else with fresh eyes will step up and do a documentary, which is better than having someone who has already done a piece on sleep, you know, arguably. I mean, that's an arguable point. I suppose, you know, you could argue that better to stick with one subject and get really, really knowledgeable at it. Um, typically, in my experience, that's not how documentary makers work. They tend to go from one subject, complete it to the best of their ability, and then move on to the next subject. And that's, that's definitely what I do. Okay, thank you, Jeff. For those who are interested, how the Wild Things Sleep will premiere on the Nature of Things on Friday, March 11th on CBC and CBC Gem. That will be 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Friday, March 11th. So mark it down on your calendars because you wouldn't want to miss it. There is a drinking water settlement for First Nations, and the claims process is now open. 
The settlement includes $1.8 billion in compensation to some individuals and First Nations subject to long-term drinking water advisories from November 1995 to June 2021, and $50 million for eligible individuals who suffered specific injuries due to these advisories. If you are a First Nations member impacted by a long-term drinking water advisory, you may be eligible for compensation. You will also have free access to legal advice and support while filling out your claim. This is the first drop in recognizing the communities impacted. For more information or to submit your claim, visit firstnationsdrinkingwater.ca. A Tribe Called Red is the hallucination with their new record, One More Saturday Night, featuring Javier Mighty, Tanya Tagak, and more out now. You're listening to the Art Support on CITR 101.9 FM, and I have Lua with me too now. Hi, Lua. Hello, everyone. So Lua's going to do a review of Little Red Warrior and his lawyer, but before she gets into that, I'm going to quickly review Albatross, which was... Albatross, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was just making sounds. Yeah, I know. I do that too. <laughs> it's a dance show presented within the Vancouver International Dance Festival, which is happening right now. They have... Their online presentations are online. Uh, yes, they're online, but also they are free and or by donation. <laughs> and they also have in-person stuff. So Albatross was by Company 605. And it was also in collaboration with a Brussels-based artist, German Jorigi. <laughs> I, I can't pronounce names. So this was a duet and it is so okay i will just read the description because it's hard to describe it <laughs> dance is hard to describe okay yes that's very fair <laughs> this physically grueling piece attempts to pull apart a single moment to dissect and experience its contents in expanded time like two parts of one's self in continuous motion and perpetual contact two bodies inhabit a single person's trajectory through a test of endurance so this was a duet uh between a man and a woman and it started off for like the first 10 minutes with the dancers covering each other's eyes with their hands and they were you know dancing doing their movements while still covering their um eyes and I like I feel like it was a good way to show their dependence on each other and then when they did you know open each other's eyes or remove their hands they were still dependent in different ways it was I feel like it was a really interesting concept I've you know never seen this done before also there wasn't music for most of it mm. it was some sounds like at one point there was a sound in the background that sounded like you know like when a jar lid falls down and it's just turning in circles until mm. like it stops like <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Um. Yeah, and it was just like turning around but not falling. <laughs> and then when there was music, it was really eerie. So it made you kind of uncomfortable and it wasn't so it wasn't like a a love duet, right? It was an uncomfortable uh, <laughs> uh yeah. And they were very interdependent throughout the whole thing. Um, I watched this with a friend and her commentary. Actually, it's always interesting hearing, you know, how people interpret it, especially people who don't watch dance a lot. Um, 
so she <laughs> at some points she was like oh she's winning i don't know what but she she's is. winning <laughs> yeah and i'm like wait what how did you <laughs> she's winning wait what if she what if my friend's right <laughs> what am i thinking <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then i started thinking about it another way i'm like oh maybe they were fighting you know and then it made more sense because at the end um she quote unquote put him to sleep we oh, don't God. know okay. if she, he was actually asleep or if he was put to sleep <laughs> and then she um went to sleep herself and i'm like wait maybe d- she did win and my friend was like you know she has more insight into dance than i do yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they were you know hurting each other even though um at times they were comfortable with each other and this was shown both by um a change in movements and also at some points they were laying on top of each other and that seemed very like pretty literally comfortable <laughs> but also at times it was a lot and they looked like they were in a fight that was very passive aggressive in a way i don't know how passive aggressive dance can be but they made it happen <laughs> and i At first, I was really confused and I wasn't sure if I would have liked it. Uh also they were dancing in jeans, which I don't know how anyone that does sounds, that. Yeah, incredibly yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, but anyways, um but then as they d- explored more and I actually read what they were um trying to convey to the audience, what the choreography was all about, it made so much sense and I think they did a really good job and I was really impressed. And unfortunately, they only performed this for two nights, March 4th and 5th, so it's done. But I mean, if you come across uh Company 605's Albatross at any point in the future, I would definitely recommend if you're okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm all I'm all for contemporary dance. Yes. And like experimenting with sound. But at the end of the day, like I really like music. Yeah. When people are dancing, yep. you know, like agreed. It's it's like I can do it without it, but I think it's just so much more enjoyable. Yeah. With it. Yeah, I think so too. Like not having music gives you a different point of view. Like you focus on the dance more or like how they're moving, how they're interacting. Um but at the same time it also feels uncomfortable <laughs> and i don't know if that's something that i strive to experience when i go see a dance show but yeah that's... i mean i mean i'll go for the dancing in jeans like but yeah so lua how about how about little red warrior and his lawyer was that uncomfortable too or did you I have know. a good time i think i think i had a good time nice Some of the jokes. So okay, so let me recap. Okay. So yes. the name of this play is Little Red Warrior and His Lawyer. It's going on until March 13th, which is this Sunday, uh at the York Theater. It's being put on by the Colch. Um again, the Colch is doing a lot of really cool things. Uh I think this is not necessarily Yeah, this is on the Colch's website. Um and what this the story is about. So Little Red Warrior is the last remaining member of the um the Little Red Warrior nation. Mm-hmm. Um and as he's kind of just vibing, you know, doing yeah. his thing existing um in his land in the woods, he hears construction and um people are like demolishing and like taking trees away and like basically building like a really big um complex Damn. on there. Um and he gets really angry and I thought that reference was pretty funny where he goes like um he goes uh little red smash like hulk smash oh like little red smash <laughs> and um yeah he uh he attacks an engineer Ooh. gets arrested <laughs> um gets put in jail and his court appointed lawyer Larry uh <laughs> Larry 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 yeah. Um, comes to him and he's like, "Hey, my, hey, dude, like, what, what was that? Why did you do that?" And he was like, "Well, I'm the last one of my people. Like, that is my ancestral land. Yeah. 
I don't want them to take it like it should be mine. It's my land. And the lawyer is like, well, do you have any proof? Mm-hmm. And he's like, the bones of my ancestors, you know, that. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so the play is about, um, and then Larry sees an opportunity in this case. He sees an opportunity to make a lot of money out of Little Red getting a settlement mm-hmm. for ha- for being, a, you know, having the rights for his own land. Yeah. And so... Um, Larry invites because he, he posts bail, right? Like pays bail. Yeah. And invites Little Red to his house. And he doesn't consult his wife. And so now the most of the play is between Larry, his wife, and Little Red. Mm-hmm. And there's a narrator figure. And that's oh. most of the play. And like those relationships. So the play really does explore uh, land rights. It explores um, a procreation in a sense, but like lineage like lineage right mm-hmm. like where do you go from here if you're the last member of your tribe and yeah. um you get the rights for it for your land cool but what if you die right like who, who, how, what happens afterwards and it also explores like um just like relationships in general like marital relationships and like how we treat people uh it was and i want to preface all of this it's a comedy oh, okay I don't know what I expected from a comedy about land rights issues of indigenous peoples in Canada. This was not it. I was not expecting this. It's a very irreverent play. It's very obviously satirical. It plays a lot, both with the audience and with general concepts of land mm-hmm. um, uh, land, <laughs> land issues. I think um, something that I think was really interesting that they pointed out in a very, like, ironic kind of way, was like, well, like, they broke the fourth wall, and it's like, well, like, realistically, this would never happen this quickly, but because we're in a play, we're going to speed it up, and it's, oh. like, going to be, like, play magic, play magic, you know? Okay. And I think the, one of the, at the end of the day, this play is very funny, very campy, um, a lot of, like, dick jokes, which, you know, <laughs> takes a certain type of humor to appreciate. Yeah, yeah, it's not for everyone, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not a play for everyone, but it's a very unique way to approach a very serious subject. And honestly, like, thinking back of it, I don't know what I expected. It wasn't this. But I also don't know how else you would make sure that you have a funny play mm-hmm. about such a serious issue. Yeah. Uh, and so in that, again, very entertaining. Um, my partner who came and watched the play with me described it as candy. You know, the kind of um, entertainment that's candy where every single bit of information is entertainment. Mm-hmm. And like everything is meant to entertain you and keep you, keep you hooked onto it. Yeah. Uh, there isn't really a pause with jokes. There isn't really ups and downs. It's st- like it starts at 100 percent. Actually, it starts at 50, goes to 100 real quick and stays at 100. Okay. <laughs> you know? And then when you think it can't go past 100, it goes to 110. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so very fun. Um. And at the end of the day, I think the play does accomplish its goal of, like, taking something serious and making people think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I took away from this play, like, now that I think back of it, other than, like, oh, my God, like, what did I just watch? That was insane. (laughs) Was they did have, like, several scenes in, like, the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And in one of the scenes for the courtroom, they were like, well, we'd start, we'd like to start with the land acknowledgement that we are... Um, oh. present we are um, doing this court on stolen land of the Squamish people and actually it didn't say Squamish but it just yeah. said like of indigenous people of Canada because yeah. in this case it would be the little word warrior people and there wasn't even any words said like little, the character for little red warrior just looked at the audience and was like <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so like how do you acknowledge yeah. that it's stolen land yeah before you start anything and then you're like no no no, you don't get to have the land rights to no. your own land yeah. even though we are acknowledging right now that it's stolen land yeah we're gonna acknowledge it but we're not gonna do anything, anything about it. it exactly yeah. and that's kind of like a lot of the jokes are around is like mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah, oh, it's yours, it's but yours, it's not but really. like <laughs> they're gonna file an injunction, and then you guys are gonna appeal, and then they're gonna file another injunction. You'll appeal, yeah. uh, injunction, appeal, and this will take years, and nothing will ever get done. Yeah, and I think that's like one of the main critiques of like the play. Um, the play has a lot of different plot twists, uh, so it does keep you like on the edge of your seat throughout it. 
It's very much like, oh, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it does. And then we're like, oh, my God, where does it go from here? Like, I don't see how they could potentially like could ever have a conclusion. It flips the world upside down. Wow. wow. Um, and again, keeping you on your toes. Very entertaining. I definitely recommend. It's not definitely not a play for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not a play that I would recommend for anyone younger than 16. Yeah. Probably not younger than 19. Um, but it does make you think it has a lot of, at the same really ironic, really high level, like satirical jokes. And it has like a lot of like, my cock is really big kind oh. of jokes. <laughs> you know? I'm so, so surprised. It's great great balance. That. Great yeah. balance, you know? It's like probably like setting up a spectrum, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you know? If you don't like that, we can go there. Yeah. Like, you know? 